Well, good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as we continue on this morning in this wonderful letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the hand of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome that now we get to enjoy by his grace for our edification and for our sanctification. What a wonderful letter and what a wonderful study this has been so far as we really, week in and week out, take a clear and uh, uh, well-stated look at the gospel as Paul presents it to us. Uh, This is a book, as uh, Luther would say, this is a book worthy of our meditation day in and day out, uh, and our memorization even, as it uh, unfolds and puts down such a firm foundation for what we believe and how we are to live. This morning, we come to chapter 5, and certainly the tone of Romans has continued to change. Uh, Those first couple of weeks, as we looked at uh, our state in our sin, were quite somber. Um, But as time has uh, progressed, and as we have worked our way through this book, Paul has unfolded this gospel before us until we get to chapter 5. And I can almost imagine, as Paul is writing out this letter that uh, he starts off in chapter 1, he knows he needs to lay a foundation of our, of our sin and, and where we are at so that he can help us to understand the glory of the gospel. And he gets to chapter 5 and he just can't hold it anymore. And he's so excited to, to help us to see where we are at now and how everything has been changed. Um, and uh, I, I hope that as we go through this morning that we will experience just a taste of that, that the Lord will well up in us uh, rejoicing and boasting and exalting the name of Christ because what he has done. And so hopefully by now you've found chapter 5. We're going to read the first 11 verses together. So if you would please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. A little bit shorter passage than what we've had the last few weeks, um, but man, it is good. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received 
reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that we may know you, that we may know the depths of your grace, of your mercy, and of your love, that we may explore it farther and farther every day as it changes us, that we may know through faith your righteousness and your justification, that we may be changed into the image of Christ, that we may experience your glory for all of eternity. Father, I pray that our worship would continue as we hear from your word what you have done and where we stand now, and that it would change how we rejoice, that it would change how we live, and that it would change the words that come out of our mouths for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord, we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It will come to no surprise uh, to anyone that has been attending these last few weeks what's next, and that is a review. It's good for us in Romans to look back and to remember how we got here every week um, because as human beings, and I speak first and foremost of myself, we tend to forget rather quickly um, what we had for breakfast, much less what we have learned so far in Romans. And so when you look at the beginning of Romans in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, we have the thesis, the main idea of Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, Paul starts out this wonderful letter, really this essay about the gospel by proclaiming the power of God uh, in this thing that he has done to bring about salvation for all who would place their faith in Jesus Christ and how it changes how we live. And so Paul starts with that main idea, and then throughout chapter 1, 18 through chapter 20, he begins to unfold why we need the gospel. And we've talked about this several times, but just again as review, he begins by reminding us that we have all denied God, that we've all committed treason. We've all said to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, I don't need you, I don't want you, I can do this better than you. And in doing so, like I said, we've committed treason and we have brought about our, on ourselves the just sentencing of treason. Not only that, but we have all sinned. Not only have we rejected God, but we have fallen morally, we have fallen short of moral perfection, which is required for life. It's required for eternal life and for relationship with God. We have all broken his law. Those things that he has laid out and said, this is what is right and good, and yet all of us have done things that uh, he has told us not to do or not done things that he has told us to do. And we see a list of some of those things there towards the end of chapter 1. Um, and all of us can identify with something, whether it's lying or gossiping or disobeying our parents, um, among the other what we would consider bigger sins or what some would consider bigger sins. We can all identify ourselves as sinners 
And therefore, we are all justly convicted and rightly sentenced. We're all justly convicted and rightly sentenced. All of us stand before a holy God, a just God, and are found guilty, and rightfully so. And then God announces the sentence for being for treason against God, for breaking the law. And the prescribed sentence is death, and not just merely physical death, but the death of the soul, the eternal separation of the soul from God in a place called hell, and in a place of eternal and forever torment. And that is just, that is the right sentence. And Paul makes it clear that in this state, as Rebels against God, as those who have broken the law, as those justly convicted and rightly sentenced, in that state, there is no self-help. There is no being good enough. We've used this example a lot, but a murderer does not stand before a judge and say, but I'm a good person other than that, so you should let me go. That would make no sense. In the same way, you cannot stand before a holy God and say, well, I know that I sinned that one time, but I've been a good person other than that. No, you're still a lawbreaker. And there is no salvation out of that by our own hand. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 21. And we see those glorious words. But now, through faith, we have a hope. We have something miraculous that has happened. But now, through faith, through the receiving of what God has done, we can experience something different. Rather than coming before a holy and just God as guilty, rightly convicted sinners facing eternal death, now we can come before God in a completely different light because God bestows upon us his moral perfection. He gives to us as individuals, those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness. It would be like you owing a million dollars and someone coming up to you and saying, I'm not only going to pay your debt, but I'm going to place all of my wealth in your account. It's mind-blowing that God would do that for us, and yet that's exactly what Paul unfolds for us, that God's moral perfection is placed on our account. So now he looks at us, and he does not see someone who is morally deficient, but now he sees the moral perfection of Jesus. Not only that, but he justifies us. He takes us from being guilty in his presence to being innocent in his presence. No longer do we fear the law, but now rather the law is a shepherd in a, in a sort of way. It's an encouragement because now we're no longer found guilty under it. Now we're found innocent. Now we're no longer uh, worthy of a sentence and conviction, but now we are worthy of blessing because of our innocence and because of the righteousness that has been put on our account. How is this possible? How is this possible that the a holy and just God would put his righteousness on our account, that he would justify us? And the answer is through his redemption. Christ made it possible when he paid the price to redeem us, when he paid the ransom for us, that we could be restored, that we could be reconciled. And he did that through his blood, the propitiation that Christ 
takes part in. The sacrificial atonement may be what your version says, but that he stepped into our place and paid a price on the cross that we could not pay on our own. That he, his blood covered our sin so that we could have life and life eternal. It's this message of the gospel. It's this message of what God has done that brings Paul to such excitement in chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and then he begins to lay out our current position. He lays out our current position, and this is where we pick up in chapter 5. He says, therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. Paul, in his great excitement over what Christ has done on the cross and through his resurrection, begins to lay out the, the reality that we are now in a completely different situation than we were in chapters 1 through 3, chapter 3, verse 20. It's a completely different situation. Now no longer are we morally deficient. Now we are righteous. Now no longer are we guilty. Now we're innocent. Now no longer are we the enemies of God. But now we are at peace with him. And this is not just an, an emotional situation. Like we sometimes talk about peace and we depict it or we understand it as just having um, uh, uh, an emotional sense that there is no strife, right? That it, it's just a, a feeling of contentment and rest. But what Paul is saying here goes beyond just any emotional feeling or, or uh, an idea of contentment. It goes to the, the kind of the legal status of being at peace. No longer is God pursuing us because we have committed sin. Now he's pursuing us out of his love. Now no longer is there strife and no longer is there a war waging between the sinner and God. But now there is peace. And you see this, uh, you see this in the, the pictures. I, I, love, I love to go back and look at different history things, but you see this in the celebration that is had when a war is declared over and the soldiers return. You, you think about World War II and, and Victory Day, and you see the pictures and the video of the ticker tape parades that happened all over this country, especially in major cities, and the dancing and the music and the celebration and, and all that happened when the soldiers come home. And, and there are just pictures of pure joy. How much more than do we understand that when we are at peace with God that we should shout from the rooftops that the victory has been won, that the war is over? We have peace with God. Not only that, but we are secure in our grace. He says, he goes on in verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That is a, a, an amazing sentence when you really think about it. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. This morning, as you think about that word grace, I want you to think about unmerited favor. We have obtained access by faith into his unmerited favor. 
Think about where we were before. When we looked at chapter 1 through chapter 3, before we entered into the presence of God, not freely walking in, but being brought as criminals before his judgment seat. And we did not stand, but rather we understood the weight of our sin that forces us to our knees. But he says now, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, now we can enter in to God's presence with a boldness standing before him, knowing that his work of grace in our lives allows us to be there and to have direct access to him. This is in, uh, this is in, uh, in opposition to what we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the temple, and the temple is divided in two by a curtain, and you have the, behind that curtain is the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God. And once a year, a priest would get to go into that Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood, to make atonement for the people in the presence of God. But they would, tradition tells us that they would tie a rope around his ankle and a bell just in case he had not done all of the things he was supposed to do, in case he comes in an unworthy manner and God smites him down and he dies. No one else dare go get him. They would drag him back by that rope. That is not entering the, enter the presence of God with boldness. That is entering into the presence of God with fear on what you think you have accomplished. That is not what Paul is talking about. Paul says we have access to God now with a boldness, Hebrews tells us, to walk in not fearing death because Christ has taken care of it. That's an amen. That changes everything. Now when we come into his presence praying we don't pray as some pie in the sky. We hope that he hears us. Now we come into his presence praying, knowing that we have a good father that desires to give good gifts and is able to do so. Now we have a faith that changes everything. Now when you stand before the king in his unmerited favor, all things are possible. That's exciting stuff. That changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we talk. It changes the way that we pray. It changes what we can hope for. And so Paul says, moving on, he says, through him we have obtained access and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our hope because now that hope has been made real. Now that hope has been made real. And so now we can fully embrace what that means. There are many that, that dream of heaven, but, and they hope that they can get there. But they do not have that assurance of it. It's kind of like the kid that grows up dreaming of going to Disneyland and there's this, this, and this hope that someday it will happen and they, they draw pictures about it and they uh, watch videotapes about it and, and they uh, look at the live cam on the website and they, they watch the Mickey Mouse videos and they do all these other things, but it is merely a dream. It's a, it's a hope that it will happen someday. And they can be excited about that. 
But there's a whole different thing when mom and dad sit them at the table and they push an envelope across the table and they say, we want you to open that. We have something for you. And they pull out and there are the, the plane tickets and there are the, the, par- the park passes. And now that hope is not just some drawing stuck to the refrigerator. Now that hope is something to really get excited about. And you see the kids go nuts in the living room and everyone is smiling and excited and happy. So too now we don't just have a drawing or a wish that someday we might get to heaven cross your fingers and your toes maybe it'll happen now we have an assurance that when our faith and trust is in Jesus Christ that it will happen Paul is overwhelmed by what is happening here and he says not only that verse 3 He's he's got all this excitement, peace with God, secure in our grace, rejoicing in our hope. And then verse 3, not only that, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, this is interesting, right? Like, you read these first few verses and there is such excitement and such build up to especially what has come. You know, like we look forward to heaven and we get excited about that. And it's like, now let me tell you about what else we have. And we're, we're excited and we're geared up and it's, we rejoice in our sufferings. And there's a little part of us that probably goes, wait a minute, what? But what Paul is, is wanting us to understand is that this grace, this This wonderful faith that we have, this wonderful assurance that we have in Christ, this peace that we have with him, it does not just change our eternal destination. It doesn't just change our eternal destination. It changes how we live right now. It changes It changes how we experience the difficult parts of the here and now. Not just what we look forward to. Oh, brothers and sisters, like I I meet people that say they believe in Christ. and, And I think there's a genuineness behind that. But their whole thing is like, I've done that so that I can experience heaven later. And it's like, then you are missing out. Because Christ's desire, God's desire is not just that you would experience him in heaven, is that you would experience his Holy Spirit in the here and now. That you would experience his power here and now. That you would experience his presence in the great moments of life, in the celebrations of life, and that you would experience it in the hard parts of life. That you would know the fullness of Psalm 23 when it says, Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, the hard parts of life, I fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. That you would know the depths of what that means. But that's hard for us to understand. So it's probably worth just a moment. What does it mean to rejoice in our suffering? What does it mean to rejoice in our suffering? Well, first, we must ask the question, what kind of suffering is he talking about? Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians. It's not very far. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12, turning just a few pages. 
Paul is talking about suffering, but he's not talking about it in an abstract form. Paul is talking about suffering and what he has experienced himself. If you don't know much about 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about in that chapter a thorn in the flesh that he himself has. It's his own suffering. And we're not told exactly what this is. It could be a physical illness. We know that Paul had uh, difficulty seeing. It could be something with his eyes. We think that it could be maybe guilt that he held on to from his time as someone that persecuted the church. It could be something completely different. It could be a sin in his life. We, we don't know. But we know that it's something that he suffered with, that he struggled with, that he grieved over. And so in verse 8, it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For, that, for the sake of Christ, then, I am excuse me, content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What kind of suffering then does Paul have in mind in this life to say that we are to rejoice and to boast in it? It is all kinds. It's not just persecution, as some would like to apply. It is in all things. It's in the hardships. It's in the insults. It's in the tragedy. This is, by the way, a truth best learned before the storm, not in the middle of it. In the middle of it, we are tossed about. It's best to be able to hold on to this truth and remember it well. Because it's hard. This, this does not mean, by the way, that we see it as easy. Nowhere does the Bible take grief or suffering or tragedy and try to make light of it or try to make it something that is easily passed through. Christ mourns at the death of his friend Lazarus. He weeps real tears. He has compassion in that moment. We see the the sorrow of God and the, the passing of his saints. We see it in Isaiah and the, the prophecies of, uh, and Jeremiah and Lamentations. Tragedy is, is a heartbreaking thing. It's a difficult thing. We're trying, we, we do not desire, nor does the Bible desire, to make light of those things this morning. But it's here to help us to understand that we have a different view of these things, that we go through tragedy and suffering differently. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, that we grieve differently than those who have no hope. You see, the world's view of suffering is that it's pointless. The world would look at catastrophes and natural disasters. They would look at hardships. They would look at at suffering, and they would say, there is no point. There is no reason. This is why even the greatest of atheists would say, atheism is a cold, cold thing. And it has in it no hope. 
because there is no point. And yet the believer approaches suffering in a, from a completely different manner because the believer approaches suffering as something with purpose, as something that God is sovereign over. This is not, not for us to understand why, by the way. We don't always get to know the why. You look at the book of Job and the suffering that that man goes through, and there is no real why. But that doesn't reduce the fact that there's a purpose in it. God tells us that his ways are higher than our ways. We simply cannot understand the ways of God when it comes to how he uses suffering in every situation. But we can know that he is in control. We can know that he uses it for our good. Going back to Romans chapter 5, we see that there is a process that happens here. It says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This isn't the only place, by the way, where Scripture speaks this way of trials and suffering. James chapter 1, starting in verse 3, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness having its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Scripture says that as we go through the difficult moments of life, when we mourn, when we grieve, when we struggle, that God is working even in the midst of those things to strengthen us. He is, for one, making us look more like Christ. Multiple commentators make a comment similar to this. They say that suffering is the weaning process of God to move us from the world and its pleasures to him, that we may trust in him, that we may find our full satisfaction in him, but it is also for our own assurance. God does not desire, friend, that you would wonder about your faith. It is not God's desire that you would question whether or not you are his or to ponder whether or not you are truly saved. It is his desire, as 1 John tells us, that we would know that we are saved. And one of the ways that he does that is he allows us to go through trials, that he allows us to go through difficult things, so that when we pass through the fire of those things, when our faith goes through testing, we may know on the other side that it is real that we may look back and rejoice that God is who he says he is, that we have met with him, that we have known him, and that our faith is true. It is our assurance. These things are our assurance. And so we don't look at suffering as the world looks at it. We don't grieve as, this, as the world grieves. We do so differently 
we do so with hope, knowing that in those moments that God is at work for our good. These are, I say all this to say, I know that this is not always easy. I know that this can be difficult. But this also is what carries us through. How many times have you heard it said, I don't know how an unbeliever goes through this without Christ? We say it all the time. It's because of these very words that we know that he is at work and for our good. So Paul, having said all of this, reminds us how all of this happened. Verse, starting in verse 6 through verse 11, he is reminding us about how all this came about, why we can rejoice how, we, how it is that we have a hope that is not, does not put us to shame, but rather that we have a hope and assurance that we can hold on to, looking ahead at what God is going to do. And it is first because Christ has died for the weak. I think it's interesting that he says this in verse 6. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. After having said that we boast in our suffering, that we we rejoice in our suffering where he says that he died for us while we were weak. When we could do nothing for ourselves, when we found ourselves at the end of our ropes, having no place to turn, unable to turn even towards him, Christ died for us. He died for you and me. Not only that, but he died for the sinner. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, do not get the idea that Christ died for you when you got your life put together. Don't think that you can earn his favor and that then he will do what only he can do. No, he died for you when you weren't looking for him. He died for you when you were still a lawbreaker. He died for you when you weren't righteous. He died for you when you were still a rebel, a treasonous person against him. He died for you when you were still morally deficient. He died for you when you were the liar and the cheat and the gossip and the unforgiven and the unforgiving. He died for you when you were still in your sin, not waiting for you to become good, but coming to you in your time of need. Not only that, but he died for the enemy. Verse 10, for if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, we were his enemy. The world cannot understand this concept, that you can disapprove of someone and love them. That you can disapprove of someone and respond to them in kindness. That's something the world really, really struggles with. You see, God, we say, we say a phrase, or you've heard it said, that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. That phrase really should be changed. That phrase really should be adjusted because when we say that, we give the idea that he approves of the sinner, that he hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. He approves of the sinner. That is not true when we look at Scripture. 
Really, we should say God hates the sin and loves the sinner. He disapproves of the person's actions and he disapproves of that person, but he still responds to them in love. That doesn't make sense. And yet that's exactly what he's done. We have looked at him and said, we disapprove of you, God. We don't need you. We're going to do something different here. And God's response, while disapproving of what we have said and done, is to say, but I'm going to die for you. I'm going to come get you. I'm going to love you. This is why God can say to us, why Jesus can say to us, love your enemies. Love those who disapprove of you. Love of those, love those who you disapprove of. Why can he say that? Because he has already shown us the way. Because he has already done that for us. We were enemies of him, and now we are at peace because he died for us. But the great thing is, though he died for us when we're weak, though he died for us, when we were sinners, though he died for us, when we were yet his enemies, that now Christ lives for our salvation. Going back to Romans 5, he says in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, it's not just that he went to the cross and died so that we could be found innocent, so that he could pay the price to bring us in right standing with God, but he also raised from the dead three days later. Why? Because it was the receipt, it was the assurance that his death paid the penalty. And so now, Scripture tells us, we can have assurance of our hope and of eternal life and of our faith because he has already, he is the first fruit. He has gone before us. Now we know that we will be resurrected one day, that we will one day be in paradise because he has gone before us. He lives so that we may be saved that we may know our salvation. In this, Paul says, we rejoice in that in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom now we have received reconciliation. Now we rejoice in this. And so the question comes, are we rejoicing? Friend, brother and sister, speaking specifically to the believer in the room, the one that would say, I have put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Are you rejoicing? Is it evident in your life that you are a rejoicer? Is it evident in your worship when you come into this room and gather together with brothers and sisters and visitors and guests and, and the, your family? Is it evident that you are rejoicing? In what he has done, uh, Keith and Kristen Getty say in their book, Sing, so we obey the command to sing. We are or should be unleashing a congregational sound of conviction, or I would say rejoicing, whether there are a dozen of us or a thousands of us. If we aren't, our children or visitors looking on have every right to wonder if what we are singing is truly important to us. In this sense, our singing betrays the truth about us for better or for worse. 
Do you rejoice in your worship? Because there are others who are looking. There are children and your grandchildren and guests and visitors and their children and their grandchildren who are looking at your face when you worship. What does it display? Does it display display a conviction of what God has done in your life? Or does it display that you are merely going through the motions? Do we rejoice in our worship? Do we rejoice in our attitudes? There, Growing up, there was a lady in Calvary, who I won't name because some people would know them. But there was a lady in Calvary, and maybe you know of this person in Vandalia's long history. I'm sure none of you are in this room right now. But there was a lady who I avoided at all costs because she terrified me. She terrified me as, as an adult, not just as a child. As a child, I wouldn't go within 50 paces of her. As an adult, I avoided her even then because I was still afraid of her. Because her attitude and her demeanor was such that you were afraid she might actually bite. You were afraid of it. You were afraid of her. And my fear is, is that not just those inside this, these four walls, but those in our community, are, are we living in such a way that though we proclaim the name of Christ, that our attitude is not one of rejoicing or of worship, but people think that we might actually bite. Certainly, that is the way that it is portrayed sometimes in the media. There are those that stand in our media who I, every time they talk about Christ, I cringe a little bit because that's not the attitude of rejoicing that I want us to be on display with. And then we meet, I meet unbelievers and they find out I'm a Christian and they're like, well, you're not so bad. I would hope not. Are we rejoicing in our attitudes? Do people know that we're different because of how we respond to things? Are we rejoicing in our speech? Is our speech marked by uplifting, by optimism? Understand, not denying reality by any stretch of the imagination, but looking forward and knowing the joy that Christ has placed in our life. Is it reflected in our speech? Just as we talked about this morning, that when our sports teams do something marvelous and wonderful, then we're happy to talk about that. Or whatever it is that you enjoy and, and rejoice in, that's... We're happy to talk about those things. Does our speech reflect the joy and the rejoicing of our salvation and of our Savior? And are we rejoicing in our actions? Not just in our attitudes, not just in our words, but in how we live life. Paul's point in chapter 5 is that we are in a different spot. We're in a different position before God. No longer are we condemned. Now we are blessed because of what he has done on the cross. And so our lives should be different because of it. And how we live every moment of every day. Even in our suffering. Even in our suffering. Friend, this morning, if you are a believer, I pray that you would look into the word of God and look into your own, allow it to peer into your heart and ask the question, am I rejoicing? 
do I feel the joy of my salvation? And if you do not, and you would ask the Lord, please remind me of what you have done. Remind me of that joy, of that love that I once had, that I may be infectious to those around me. If you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have never known a relationship with him, then my prayer for you this morning is that today that you would come to him and confess, I need you. Father, forgive me. God, forgive me for what I've done wrong. I need you. I believe in, your, in the cross and in the resurrection, and I want to follow you. I want that hope, and he will change everything. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We're just going to have a time of response this morning to respond to what the Lord has done, whether it be in song or whether it be in prayer or whether it to be to come to the altar and to kneel and to thank him for what he's done and, and ask him to renew that joy in us, we come and we respond to this word that he's given us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, as Paul talks about, Lord, our new standing in him, our new position in you of now we, that we no longer come before you in fear, but now we come before you in rejoicing because of your unmerited favor and your love. Lord, what a wonderful thing. Lord, I pray that it would change our, our attitudes, our worship, our speech, our actions, that it would change the rejoicing that we have in the, the greatest moments of life and remind us of your presence in the horrible, hard things of life, to know that you are in control. Father, I pray, Lord, do a work today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Honey, in your